the Wheelie Podcast. Let your iPod bloom. This week on the Wiggly Podcast, we might talk cows, we might talk bees, we might talk business, or we might talk trees. <laughs> what do you think of that, right? Absolutely excellent. Anyone will do. Escape to the countryside with Wiggly Wigglers. Where is Ricardo? He is where, right? He's gone down to the M25 somewhere doing a talk with some vets. That's what he told me. <laughs> and he tried to fit it in on the Chelsea setup day trip tomorrow which is friday and of course it was never going to work so he's gone today instead so we'll hear on sally traffic that there's a big tailback southbound <laughs> on the m25 because ricardo is talking to vet yes probably. he does love talks doesn't he rich mm. he's doing lots of talks at hay festival coming up next week we're having the festival garden at hay and we're having short talks from 12 o'clock then two o'clock then four o'clock with Richard talking about Bukashi, using wildflowers and lots of other things. So come along, Hay Festival of Literature, the Wiggly Garden. There's lots of other people talking on stage. They've got a website, haven't they? Yep, hayfestival.com. Raggy Omar, Monty Don, Polly Toynbee, Chris Patton, Claire Short, Jane Fernley Whittingstall, that Hugh's sister. Oh. And she's a very good writer. And Maureen Lipman. Coming up on this week's show, we'll find out what's been happening at Wiggly Wigglers and we'll be down on the farm with Farmer Phil. Monty's coming in with his wormcast and we have a report that Richard made about climate change with Dr Dave Ray. And thank goodness Rachel's here because there's a question about mealworm breeding. So, off we go with this week at Wiggly's. Raquel, I want to ask you, how is the national water butt shortage going? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> there is a shortage. We had our delivery in last week of water butts and we've been out of them for several weeks. And together, Jodie and I put the orders together and we whacked them all out from here on Friday. And so they should be delivered with the customers on Monday, the 15th. And so we put a little note inside with a little sorry and a little free prezi for them. And so we put on our note, let's hope it rains tonight. (laughs) So they should have all received them by now. And I think they've started to arrive because Mrs Reynolds says, The rain but arrived today, much to my delight. Thank you for the spiral feeder sent as a sorry you've had to wait. I've often thought about buying one and I hadn't got round to it. Many thanks. Yeah, that's very great. And so we've got rain butts in stock now. So Chris Evans on Radio 2, I've heard you say that about the national water butt shortage. Wigglies have got some. (laughs) (laughs) And you customers who've bought them, please don't sell them on eBay for a profit because then we'll have to send some more out and that will be even more trouble. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Rach and Jodie filled an Arctic lorry with water butts and they were like dervishes. Absolutely. I wanted to keep you up to date with what Chris Bain said about our new book because I think I missed that out. He says, A wonderful book about a beautiful and inspiring garden. Wildlife and gardeners all over the country are bound to benefit from Wiggly Wigglers Brilliant Examples. And that's by Chris Baines who wrote How to Make a Wildlife Garden. 
So the book is currently still at the printers. But hopefully those English printers in Somerset, those dear people called PIMS, will come up trumps. Because we're having PIMS to launch the book. So PIMS, please print the book. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise we could have a bit of a moment. (laughs) An episode. Yeah. Gosh, get it to us quick. (laughs) Richard went to the Malvern Spring Gardening Show. Did yeah. you go? No, I didn't go this year. First time in many years that I didn't go, but apparently they had more visitors than ever. It was a fantastic show. I went on the Friday and it was boiling hot and I went to see the show gardens. Good variety of show gardens. Great. And the winner, best in show actually, was a Japanese water garden. So complete opposite to what a wiggly garden would be in the sense that it was very hard landscape rectangular structural garden but even so beautiful the next rh show we're at is chelsea flower show and i raquel am a judge that's fantastic (laughs) i do believe you were a judge last year as well Oh, that's right. Just take the edge off it. And mingled with the high and mighties (laughs) of RHS world. Yeah, just in case the listener thinks I'm going to judge the proper gardens, I am a sundries judge. (laughs) (laughs) Judging sundries. Yeah, a bit lower down the scale. (laughs) But anyway, we're looking for the same kind of thing because they're very keen on having planting and attractive stands. So I should be going around judging sundry stands to see if they look attractive and they actually give a message out, not just sell gardening gloves. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with gardening gloves, but just selling gardening gloves isn't Chelsea, darling, is it? No, no, no. They've got a variety. Yeah, visitors want planting, they want excitement, they want chat, they want to learn something. And then Richard's there. (laughs) And then, of course, we have Richard there. (laughs) Gardening gloves explains it all with Richard. (laughs) Oh, you'll get us when he's back. Yeah. He's taking his band of merry men, well, band of merry women. Harem of women, we should Ooh, say. heck. From Pershall College of Horticulture. And they're a wonderful bunch yep. and full of knowledge about wildlife gardening. So that's great. Yep. They did it at Malvern. And the first time ever they did it and they were absolutely great. Mind you, they did suffer a day of Richard training. That's Pip true. told me that <laughs> he kept seeing them all over the farm as... Richard dragged them to the wildflower meadow and then over to the Bokashi and then up to the can of worms. But it was all right. When Richard had gone somewhere to the toilet or wherever, I took them to one side and had a quick word with them (laughs) about how it really was. Excellent. So all was all right. Monday, I was filming with the Federation of Small Business because they're opening a new office in Brussels to connect small business with the decision makers in the European Parliament. Wow, that sounds exciting. Um, Well, hopefully. Wiggly Wigglers has been chosen as one of five businesses to start off the opening day. And um, we get to talk about the business and the issues that are there and what we're trying to achieve. That's really good. What are they trying to achieve there, then? I think they want to get a feel of what happens when they put a piece of legislation into a real business. So they've got a set of five businesses they're going to talk about the impact that new legislation has, whether it's age discrimination or perhaps something like the cap, the agricultural payments, what actually happens on the ground. So our job is to feedback 
on what the, all these decisions mean to a real live business and whether the impact is always what they expect it to be. I think the Federation of Small Business thinks that the people making the decisions are so far removed from us that mm. they need actual input there on the ground. Oh, that'll be great. Well, that'll be really good because you'll be able to get your point across. Yeah, do you think it'll make any difference? I do, yeah. Anyway, we've got one MEP listening to our podcast, and that's Philip Bushell Matthews. Excellent. Hello! (laughs) We're in the news this week. We always say that, don't we? Yeah. But we are. So it was the Mail on Sunday, so I had to buy a Mail on Sunday. Alison brought one in, with Heather talking about the blog, and luckily they didn't pick that picture of me when Jodie dropped the worms all over my face. (laughs) Yeah, you must go to Heather's blog. (laughs) to see that picture (laughs) it is there in full force so she said rustling the paper so we do have a picture of heather in the weekly garden holding up a laptop computer and a bunch of lobworms that's very realistic but thank you for the article and then we have a great article by lucy siegel in the observer is it ethical to buy cut flowers and she's got all these different figures that actually shows people what, what a difference they could make by buying either organic fair trade or English flowers. She cites the case of Kenya where 19,000 tonnes of flowers were imported into the UK from Kenya, which racked up 33,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions. And also, she tells us about a study of the greenhouses in Mexico, which were growing flowers for the global market. And they found 36 chemicals in air samples from the hothouse, including, amazingly, DDT. And DDT has been banned in the UK for squillions of years. Oh, dear. Seems like squillions of years. Oh, dear. And in the field of flowers, get it? Just. I'm wasted here. Richard wasted. would have got the joke, I'm Absolutely sure. <laughs> wasted. We have a competition this week, which is a darling, I think. Right. It's for a wiggly bouquet, English flowers, and of course you can have them sent anywhere within the UK. So you could have them sent to your mum or to your mate, or you could have them sent to yourself, but I think that would be a little self-indulgent. Here is the wiggly question. Answers need to be in by the end of May. What former American vice president is speaking at Hay Festival 2006? I think the answer is in podcast 30. You can look at the festival website to find out the answer. Please email heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk or rach at wigglywigglers.co.uk. Is that Rachel? No, it's Rach, R-A-C-H, at wigglywigglers.co.uk. Fantastic. And now, while Richard isn't here, you've read my favourite book this year, Rach, The Farm. I have. I read The Farm. About a Yorkshire family who set up in pig farming, or was a pig farming family, and how legislation and the ways of changing farming, they had to diversify or stop farming. So basically they stopped farming, but they had three children. The oldest son is narrating the book and he 
couldn't get on in farming at all. Everything he did went wrong. So he became quite a good academic, went off to London and got a job as an editor, but kept coming back to the farm all the time. And the other son that was at the farm was fantastic at farming, did everything absolutely wonderful. But you said to me, didn't you, that you couldn't understand why they didn't diversify or the guy who'd gone off to London didn't encourage them to diversify, but actually he really liked the farm as it was. He did. I think that was the problem because he went off to London and got his job there, but every time he came back home, he loved the farm as it was. But But it needed to change. But it needed to change to make money. And, of course, it didn't change, so they had to have a farm sale and sell it up. And it's all about the traumas of going through the farm sale. You're not selling it to me, love. It sounds really (laughs) depressing. (laughs) But, no, it's really interesting. Really, really interesting book. And it's funny. And it's funny. Yeah, lots of wit and humour in it. Now, I would start giving it the chocolate rating, but Mm. the chocolate rating has to change. Yes. That's life. It's going to change. Yeah. Because green and black chocolate, I've now tasted... The most recent flavours, and they are absolutely delicious. And so the chocolate rating has to have a green and black in it. So that becomes number four. And so what's going to drop out is Nestle. So at number one is Hershey's. Number two is Cadbury's. Number three is Galaxy. Number four is green and black. Mm -hmm. And number five is Milka. Right. Okay. Well, I won't give it a top rating because it never had the ending that I'd hoped for. I never quite got the detail. It's real life. It's real life. But it does say it's real life. So I'm going to go for number four green and black. Green and black. I'm going to go for that. Although I've never tasted it and I'm a Cabris fan, (laughs) I'll go for the green and black. A ridiculous answer. How could you possibly do that after I've invited you on the show as the Mm. co host? (sighs) There we go. Anyway, feedback. This week we have your question, Rach. Okay. This is from Mandy Tatler and she says, I'm a newcomer to your podcast and I've just caught up by logging into your archive page. Can you please tell me about mealworms? How to look after them, how they breed, the birds that like them, how often to feed the birds. I buy one or two kilo packs and I keep mine in a washing up bowl. I hope not with the water in, (laughs) and put mealworm food in once a week after sieving out the waste. This time, I left the newspaper in, which they were packed in the bowl. After a few days, I found some white hard bits in the bowl. What are these, please? Well, mealworms, people do like to have a go at breeding their own, and it's quite educational for children as well. But anyway, you start off with your mealworm and you want a tray around about the size of an ordinary seed tray or maybe like a cat litter tray, something like that. Something that's shallow but steep-sided and plastic so they can't climb up the sides and get out. You want minimum bran in there, about five mil of your bran stroke food, you know, that wiggly supply. And then the mealworms will pupate. They're quite an ugly little white hard thing that Mandy's talking about and it lies there and it doesn't eat at all. Within a couple of weeks that will then develop into the flower beetle. The flower beetle then lays the eggs so once again keeping very minimal bran in there. Now when it develops into the flower beetle you do not want to sieve the frass out from there because they lay the eggs and you won't see them because they're very small and they will develop into the tiny mealworms now you also you must put something in for moisture and carrots are the most perfect thing 
put a couple of carrots in this tray whole and eventually you'll see your tiny little mealworms clinging to the carrots for moisture. They will develop and grow from that point. What They're... temperature do you have to keep this at? Because my friend was actually breeding mealworms in an airing cupboard. Yeah, airing so cupboard. was a bit exotic. Okay, airing cupboard is absolutely fine. No problem with airing cupboard. It's lovely and warm in there. It does have to be in a warm temperature. Normal room temperature is absolutely fine. You know, I've done it in normal room temperature and it works absolutely perfect. Airing cupboard's absolutely fine. It's a little bit warmer in there. They like the warmth. So, you know, that sort of temperature is fine. So once you get it to your tiny mealworm stage, once the eggs have hatched and you get your tiny mealworms in your tray, um, you'll see them clinging to the carrots they will then grow and shed their skin as they grow. So don't worry about that. That's absolutely normal. And once they get to the size where you want to feed them to the birds, then just use them. Keep a few back for breeding again. So you can have several cycles on go at once, and that should keep you going in mealworms. But it depends how many birds you've got as whether you can keep up supply or not. Flower beetles don't fly, do they? No. The flower so you're beetle... not going to have flower beetles flying no. all over your air? Can no, they? they don't fly anywhere, flower beetles. That's absolutely fine. And the birds that like them? The oh, birds that like them. Well, any birds will go for them on your bird table. You not can... pigeons. Peas no. they like, don't they? Yeah. Peas. I get asked this question quite often, but one of the great places to go to is www.google.co.uk. And if you search for mealworms or mealworm breeding... You can find loads of information on there, and I'll have missed out some, I bet, that'll put you right about which way to go and what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right. But there's so much information on Google about mealworm breeding. Thanks, Rach. Hope that helps, Mandy. If not, give us a ring and I'll fix it. (laughs) I've got another one. This is from a lady in Sheffield, an interesting email. It says, I was really fascinated by this podcast thing, and so I came and had a look. Now, I'm not brave enough at the moment to sign up to iTunes, But I was really enjoying listening to the archives. The podcasts are fantastic. It's wonderful to hear people who are so obviously totally consumed by and enjoying what they are doing. The podcasts are so informative, so on the button about so many really important issues and at the same time great fun. It's lovely for me actually. I've been ill for many years and I'm now recluse and very scared of people. In fact, I rarely go out and I haven't seen anyone other than my parents and doctors for years. Your podcasts make me laugh. And I don't laugh much. I'm not looking for sympathy. I just thought you should know because I'd be surprised if I'm the only one in this position. Anyway, cut the waffle because why I'm writing, of course, is because the archives have stopped at number 28. Or am I being really stupid? It does happen quite regularly. So whether you can tell me where to find number 29 onwards or if I've got to watch this space, let me know. I'd be really grateful. Right, I'm going now. Oh, except... It's worth writing to you for a bit of advice on lawn mowing, organic approach to and all that. Well, just to keep you up to date on the archives, if archive number 28 is the last one up there, Michael, dear fellow, will fix it. And if you still see just number 28 up there, get rid of your cache. So empty your cache. And that will sort it out and you'll see that the archives go up to a couple of episodes before the most recent episode. This month on the 24th of May on the BBC you'll be able to see a programme called Climate Chaos with David Attenborough. 
And one of the contributors to that film was Dave Ray, Dr. Dave Ray. And he's written a book all about climate change and what you can do at home to make a difference. So you know those gas heaters that splurge out heat and try and heat the world? He talks about those and how you can make a difference in your garden. His book's called Climate Change Begins at Home. And Richard got to interview him for the Wiggly podcast. So over to Ricardo. Thanks very much for, I should say, thanks very much for agreeing to take the time and speak to us, Dave. Oh, um, you're welcome. How was, the, how, was, how was the initial contact between Wiggly Wigglers and yourself? It's my editor at Macmillan, actually. She, she saw that um, the Wiggly Wigglers podcast was in the top five science podcasts, I think. Is that right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and um, so she emailed, and because I talk about Wiggly Wigglers and, and worm farms in, in my book, right. she thought, you know, get in contact with them so right. so i i did i think that's right. how it happened anyway <laughs> oh, yeah oh, that sort of yeah that, that kind of makes sense i guess um I, I just i wonder if you could explain some of the work that you're doing at the moment you're up at uh, the university of edinburgh aren't you that's right yeah my day job is to look at how greenhouse gases so carbon dioxide methane and nitrous oxide the big kind of three man-made greenhouse gases how if we change land use if we grow forests or we cut down forests and change it to agriculture how that changes the emissions to the atmosphere so really looking at ways of, of better managing the land to reduce emissions or in some cases take up carbon dioxide can we assume that that climate change is a reality uh, you, you hear occasionally most people seem to think that carbon emissions are contributing uh, to you know accelerating the climate change to a considerable extent but occasionally mm-hmm. you hear somebody that says no no it's just a glitch you know it's just this has happened through the history of the world and whatnot but um i mean what what's your feeling about that the point of view the skeptics tend to take is that climate's always changed and it always has. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are natural drivers to climate like how active the sun is or how many volcanoes are spewing dust into the atmosphere. And those kind of natural drivers, they explain the way the climate changes up until about 1850. And then since then, we've seen this rapid warming globally. But these natural drivers don't explain it. And, and the, the culprit there is, is greenhouse gas emission from human activities, mainly fossil fuel burning. Right. So as far as the scientific community goes, there is a very wide consensus that man-made human-induced uh, climate change is a reality. Yeah. Certainly. And I guess for, for many of our listeners, one of the, one of the things people, and, and it has been in... Um in the in the, kind of the fore of uh, uh, much of the media recently is the effect that climate change is going to have on our gardens. There's good news and bad news for, for our gardens. If we go for the good news first, that warming climate is going to mean we get longer growing seasons in the UK right. and less frost damage in winter. So if you look at recent decades, spring's being pushed back by between two and six days each decade right. um, and autumn's coming about two days later each decade. So it means we can... We can grow things for a longer period. Sure. In your opinion, is it, is it too late for people to start making a conscious effort to change the way they live? Yeah, n- not at all. I mean, we're committed to a certain amount of climate change, so we are going to see the planet warming up, the UK warming up during this century. But we can decide at the moment over the next few years and the next decades just how hot it gets, how bad it gets. Right. Um, so that the predictions at the moment are that we'll see a global warming of between about one and a half and six degrees centigrade. And whether we get the six or whether we get the one and a half, a lot of that is down to 
how we live our lives, how much greenhouse gas we carry on emitting or whether we do something about it. In many respects, it's quite fun. I noticed that there are several TV programmes recently about um, you know, talking about green living, documenting families that are, that yeah. are trying to live in a more sustainable fashion. Um, yeah. In, in your opinion, I know we can do things like um, you know change change light bulbs, fit low energy light bulbs. We can mm. uh, there are various uh, cars on the road now, hybridised cars that run on, on electricity and some on fossil yep. fuels. You know, and um, yep. I mean, uh, what are the other things that people can do in their garden to make a difference? Well, in the garden, one of the ones which is, has been in the headlines a lot this week, I think there's a national shortage of water butts yeah, because yeah. people have seen that the summers are going to get much drier in the UK yeah. and there are going to be more water shortages and obviously for our gardens that's a problem. And by conserving water, so trapping rainwater, that's a great way to save obviously water resources but it takes energy to purify water and put the water into our taps right, um, so by capturing our water and being careful about our water use we're actually saving energy as well so it's, yeah. it's a winner both ways yeah one of the other big things in the garden is growing your own fruit and vegetables and like i was saying we're going to get longer growing seasons warmer conditions so the, the, the sort of range of things we're able to grow in the garden is going to increase and everything that we can grow in the garden rather than it being shipped in from the other side of the world obviously saves on the transport emissions and, and that's a great way to make a difference absolutely uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting you, you talk about collecting water and, uh, and yeah. certainly, certainly for my part I've got several water butts at home big galvanised tanks that, I, that collect practically all the rainwater from the, from the roofs of the, the entire yeah. building and, but it, it's, when you start doing things like that you become quite passionate about it don't you it's, it's fun yeah, I think- you know yeah, I mean, that is one of the fantastic things with, um, well, particularly with kind of fighting climate change in the garden is um, you can go out there and, and say if you've got children, you, you can give them a, a, a small area of your garden to start growing vegetables in. One of the things my daughter loves is, is composting and the worm farm is a right. particular favourite. Yeah. This is a real winner as far as climate change goes, because if, if you take all the kind of kitchen waste, the old sprout tops and tea bags, if that kind of stuff goes into a landfill site, it rots down there and produces this powerful greenhouse gas called methane. But by feeding it to your worms and composting it, obviously you're getting great kind of black gold to feed your plants in the garden to grow more veg, and you're avoiding these methane emissions. So again, it's, it's a really good thing to do. No, absolutely right, yeah. And again, it's quite fun because, of course, you're using something that otherwise you'd throw away. Uh, and, yeah. of course, the, the vegetables that you grow, you know exactly where they've come from. You know exactly how they've been grown. You know that they haven't been covered in pesticides and herbicides. Yeah. You know, anyone who's ever grown their own vegetables or fruit in their garden knows that you can't beat the taste. Nowhere else can you get that food so fresh and the taste is just wonderful and the fact that you've grown it yourself uh, i mean in summer we you know every evening we go into the uh, greenhouse or into the garden and pick salad and cucumbers and tomatoes and it's just great fun most of it doesn't make it back inside because it's all eaten before yeah. we get back yeah. to the house but yeah, it's, it's, it's super fun yeah it is it is great fun i mean do you think that um I mean, we, we have a, I mean, obviously we have a situation at the moment where if you go down to, to um, the, the south coast, you'll see palm trees growing along the, uh, the, you know, the coastline and whatnot. Mm. It's obviously considerably warmer than, say, um, in North Yorkshire, uh, yeah. you know, on, on average. But, I mean, do you, would you sort of anticipate seeing palm trees, for instance, you know, on the North Yorkshire moors in, uh, you know, in 20, 30 years' time? <laughs> there are 
lots of changes going on in, in where people are able to grow different plant species. So some plant species, like the alpine plants, are actually suffering. And, and that, you know, having a green lawn, for instance, in the southeast of England is going to become almost impossible unless you're willing to spend a lot of money on watering it. Right, so right. there are going to be big changes in how our gardens look and, and growing grapes. Um, obviously, already there's a kind of ideal thriving growing market for champagne grapes in the, in the south of England. And uh, I've even got my own grapevine in uh, my house in uh, West uh, Lovian, uh, yeah, planning, yeah. planning to make a, a Chateau Ray at some point. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we are, are going to. I look forward to a bottle of that. <laughs> I, I don't know how drinkable it's going to be. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you look out of your window now and then and take it, you take in what your garden looks like in 10 years' time, it's going to look very different. It's probably, you know, the plant species there, the green lawn that you've got now is probably not going to be there in 10 years' time because of the drought, particularly in the southeast. So, yeah, things are going to change um, quite radically, I think. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. Uh, I think it's, it's also worth make, mentioning that people often think, well, well, things are going to change, so we'll go with it. And in many respects, you know, it, it, it's a question of having to go with it. So it's making the most of that an opportunity, if you like. It's like an adventure, you know, changing, the, changing going with the landscape of your garden working with you know the climate and the you know and the, the, yeah. and the atmosphere that you're gonna we're gonna have to well i mean a large part of dealing with climate change is not just the mitigation so cutting our emissions but it's also adapting to it changing the kind of plants we grow in the garden it's part of that adaptation and conserving water more again is adaptation to drier conditions so that's important but of course something that's that's uh, i often think about is that we do need to or to make a slight effort don't we we need to just change things slightly because uh, you know you often see that people look companies make claims of being carbon neutral for instance a avis yes. car hires a they um, profess to be a, a carbon neutral company well i mean i, I think the reality is that uh, if, I mean, if you're a, if you're a sort of car hire company then you know to, to do anything good to plant trees is obviously a good thing but to sort of claim that you're carbon neutral and by just putting trees back into the environment to, in an attempt to absorb some of the you know the carbon dioxide that we're emitting and naturally is is um is it's probably not the be all and end all is it no i mean uh Companies are, are going carbon neutral, um, I think, because they're picking up this growing groundswell of opinion that people are concerned about climate change. They want to know what their politicians are doing, what their companies are providing services. They want to see that they're doing doing something about climate change. And I think that that's positive. That's a good thing. I mean, obviously, the companies rely on offsetting, so planting trees or funding renewable energy projects. Uh, but we can't plant enough trees to offset our emissions. So the bottom line is that we actually have to cut our emissions. And one of the perceptions for a lot of people is that, oh, you know, it, that means we have to go and sort of live in the woods and just live on berries. Yeah, sure. um, but actually, the, the easy things like driving a smaller car, avoiding flights, getting the train instead of getting the plane if you're traveling around the UK, recycling, composting, saving water, all these things, they all make a difference. Every kilogram of carbon dioxide they prevent from getting the atmosphere helps delay climate change, helps keep us back from what could be catastrophic impacts. So every, every little thing really does make a difference. Okay, excellent. Well, that's some serious food for thought. And uh, thanks, yeah. I mean, thanks very much again, Dave, for speaking. You're welcome, to us. Richard. Cheers, Dave. Right. Thank you, Richard. I'm joined now on the Wiggly sofa by Farmer Phil. Hello. And he's a bit wound up today, aren't you, Farmer Phil? Not too bad. What's the trouble, love? Well, I started off by being wound up. I was listening to last week's and the week before podcast with Neville from the Nature Trust. And I started off feeling quite angry, and then, having calmed down, 
I realised that actually the situation, once again, is a lack of communication and that I don't fully understand what he's up to and I don't think he fully understands what I'm up to. And therefore, apportioning blame is fairly pointless and that what we ought to do is actually get together and sort it out. What are you waffling about? What, what was wrong with last week's podcast? Well, you very reasonably asked him how many farmers were involved in his work with the Nature Trust and he, after a pause, very truthfully had to admit very few. And given that the farmers are the people who spend their time in the countryside and are likely to have a large quantity of information that is useful to Neville in his biodiversity action plans and so on, it seems likely that they ought to get together. And I also think there's misunderstanding. But farmers can join the Nature Trust just like normal humans can. So what are you on about? And that we haven't, so that we're at fault as well. Oh. (laughs) Is that it? Is that all you want to say? Because you've been winding Richard up all week and now it's a right cop-out, Phil. Well, one of my missions is to wind Richard up, but more accurately, one of the things that I think is important to establish when you're trying to measure how the environment is, what level do you take certain species to be the correct level? And to my mind, different people have different views on this. I've got a couple of examples that I think are relevant. If you counted buzzards now and then measured their success at other times, you know, I think there are a hell of a lot of them. Is that right? Is this the level we should be having or or not? Similarly, this year seems to be a very good year for goldfinches. We've got hundreds of them. Is that a good thing or are there too many? And have birds that are so, say, in decline really declined or was the, the base year a particularly good year for them? I don't know the answers to the questions, but I've got a feeling that the two groups concerned, Nature Trust and farmers, talking to each other would get a more accurate result. And I don't think it's very helpful for me to get wound up with the Nature Trust or the Nature Trust to ignore the views of farmers and therefore farmers have got to join the Nature Trust or at least get together with them and go forward from there. What have you been up to this week? I have finished planting my peas and we have been finishing turning the cattle out and all the things that go together with that and I've been filling in my single farm payment form for 2007. Wow! And now, the question that's been on the listeners' lips for the last squillion years that we've asked on the Wiggly Podcast every single time that Farmer Phil's been in. Farmer Phil, have you received your single farm payment? I'm very pleased to report (gasps) that I have received some of it. Whoop, whoop, whoop! How come? What's happened? Well, it would seem that the departure of Mrs Beckett to the Foreign Office, whether they'll be pleased with that or not, I don't know, did herald some action. And Mr Miliband decided that he was going to pay a part payment to as many people as he could straight away. And true to his word, he did. That actually hasn't changed the mess that he's got to sort out to fix the rest of it, but at least it has eased the pressure on all our cash flows, which can only be good. I have emailed David Miliband to ask him to come on the Wiggly podcast, and he has got a blog. He's um, one of a very few ministers who've got a blog. It's um, at the DEFRA website, and his blog talks all about how he is trying to support farmers, And it does invite comments, and I've already made a comment on his blog about the state of farming today. And I told him about our podcast. So I'm not sure if he'll come on, but hopefully he will. 
Over we go to Monty's Wormcast this week, and good luck in ocean commotion, Monty. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty, a weekly fact on worms. Worms lay cocoons. The ova within the cocoon are fertilised, and the resulting embryos grow inside the sealed unit, much like a chick developing inside an egg. When the embryos have consumed all the nutritive material, they completely fill the lemon-shaped cocoon and are ready to hatch out one end. Ocean Commotion is Monty's school play. He's a herring in it. Thank you, Monty, for that. And next week, we have a special podcast. We're renaming it Robcast, because we have Rob Lee in from Forest Art, and he is a whizzy kiddie on all things gardening-y, wildlife-y, and particularly wildflowery. So it will be great to have Robin. So listen in for the Robcast. Bye for now.